invite you to Psalms 95, where we'll read the chapter, 11 verses, and the latter 4 or 5 will be our text. Psalms 95, reading at verse 1. O come, let us sing unto the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before His presence with thanksgiving and make a joyful noise unto Him with psalms. For the Lord is a great God and a great King above all gods. In His hand are the deep places of the earth. The strength of the hills is His also. The sea is His, and He made it, and His hands formed the dry land. O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker. For He is our God. We are the people of His pasture and the sheep of His hand. Today, if you will hear His voice, harden not your heart as in the provocation, as in the day of temptation in the wilderness. When your fathers tempted me, proved me, and saw my work. Forty years long was I grieved this generation and said, It is a people that do err in their heart, and they have not known my ways, unto whom I swear in my wrath that they should not enter into my rest. And that last phrase will be where we'll take our subject title from, Entering into His Rest. That is something that many anticipate, and very sadly, the reality is, like the children of Israel, most will fall short of. But numerous things are said here in verses 7 through 11 to tell us not only about God's rest, but also about why people fail to enter into that rest. And that's what we want to look at today. We'll read a portion of Scripture in Hebrews 3 and 4 a little later on. And the warning in Hebrews 4 is, in reference to what we've read here and the children of Israel, is that we be diligent and pay attention lest we make the same mistake they did and fall short of entering in to his rest. You know, unfortunately, many times when someone passes away and there is a viewing before the funeral or at the funeral and you pass by and you look at that corpse, dead body, the person's not there, that's just the tabernacle they were in. And again, you know, the unbelieving world can't, can't, decipher that it's very sad but how often do we hear comments like well they look peaceful and they look at rest and so forth and so on well indeed everybody like that is at rest physiologically that body has quit laboring the muscles are relaxed the heart's not beating the organs are not functioning indeed the body is at rest. But sadly, we know that the soul has departed from that body. And the rest that seemingly is taking place in that body has nothing to do whatsoever with the state of the soul. And yet, only the people of God that know what the Scriptures say would consider such a thought. Let me put it to you this way. In Luke 16, we have Lazarus and the rich man. I'm sure both Lazarus' body and the rich man's body looked at rest, even though there would be a drastic difference in how they looked with Lazarus being a beggar with sores and 
the rich man living in luxury, but both their bodies, I'm sure, were at rest and looked at rest. They weren't breathing, functioning, right? But what about their souls? The man that was lost was not resting in any way, shape, or form, was he? Lazarus rested in Abraham's bosom. The angels carried him there. He entered into the rest. But the other man who had rested so much in this life entered into torment. He came up short. That's our subject. That's what we're talking about. Now the reference in the verses 7 through 11 here is obviously to the children of Israel, their deliverance from Egypt and the bondage, the exodus journey, and the entrance into the land God had promised, the promised land. That's the reference. That's the example that we're looking at here. And those are the people that most of them came up short. Now the Bible, as we know, as God's people, is an amazing book. And I want to say something here today again that I've probably referenced and said before, but when you look in the book of Exodus, the end of Genesis and the book of Exodus, and we see the children of Israel, that nation, being birthed in Egypt, God delivering them the Exodus journey of 40 years and entering into the promised land, we have the broadest, most foundational picture of redemption right there. Right there. Very early on in the Bible. And everything after that concerning redemption can be in one way, shape, or form traced right back to all of that event. It's all there. All the details are there. All things involving redemption in the New Testament can be traced back to something there. I mean, the bondage of sin in Egypt, God saving with a mighty hand, the Passover, the blood, the water, the I mean, all of it. I mean, preachers could preach on it for a millennium. If every preacher on this earth preached on it continually for a millennium, and we'd never exhaust all that there is there that's pictured in that redemption. And I believe that's something that fundamentally has been lost and is not being taught and should be taught, is there's your, there's your foundation and groundwork for teaching, whether it's children or young converts. God's dealing with Israel right there. And we look at that and we see some made it and some didn't. We see God's goodness. We see man's mistakes. It's all there. So outstanding. A precedent God sets for us in all of that. And we marvel as we look at God's grace, God's goodness, and God's attributes that are continually on display. And at the same time, we grieve as we look at man and his human nature and his response to that goodness of God. It's a beautiful picture of God's redemption. And we should look, and we should learn. And in fact, as I mentioned in Hebrews 3 and 4, let's go there and look at that. That's the reference the writer of Hebrews makes in the last of chapter 3 there. And I'm going to pick up there at the, about verse 17 of chapter 3 and read through verse 2 of chapter 4. And the writer says, But with whom was he grieved forty years? Was it not with them that had sinned, 
whose carcasses fell in the wilderness? And to whom swear he that they should not enter into his rest, but to them that believe not? So, so we see that they could not enter in because of unbelief. Let us therefore fear. Okay, here's the application practically to us to look back and learn from them and their mistakes lest we should make the same mistake. Lest a promise left us of entering into, again notice, His rest, any of you should seem to come short of it. For unto us was the gospel preached as well as unto them, but the word preached did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in them that heard it. And he goes on to talk about the rest through verse 9. I can't go through all of that. But again, entering into his rest. You know, as human beings, when we attend or go to the funeral of someone we have known who is a believer, it's a bittersweet experience, isn't it? I mean, you can feel sad humanly at your loss, but at the same time you can rejoice because you know, you know, they have entered into the rest that we're talking about. We know that God's Word is true, that He has a prepared place for His people. Not only does the body rest from pain and anguish and sorrow and all of that, but the soul has entered into His rest. And death is just the door and the portal by which that takes place. On the other hand, when we go to the funeral of someone whose soul is uncertain or more than likely by the works we know of, the life they lived or the testimony that they did not have, they have went to hell in all likelihood. That is very unpleasant, isn't it? You can't rejoice at that funeral like you can someone you've known whose works you know have followed after them into their rest. It's a very sad thought when we consider those who are anticipating, thinking, and believing that when they die, they will enter into rest, but they will enter into torment. There's going to be more disappointed than we ever imagined, I believe. That's the fear of this preacher. And that's not just among Christians. You know, I mean, look at the religions of the world that promise something and there is no rest. But in Christianity, so many will come up short. Well, let's look in our text at some characteristics here that may help someone today to know for sure that you're going to enter into that rest or that you may be making the same mistakes that they may made and came up short. Numerous things are said here of the characteristics of the children of Israel. And let's begin back up there in verse 7. The psalmist is obviously speaking of the Israelites, although verse 7 can make a, an application here to all who believe. But let's deal with the Israelites in the context, shall we? He is our God. How many of the Israelites you think believe that? Probably every one of them. I mean, all of them that were in Egypt, the seed of Abraham, acknowledge the God of Abraham and that they were in a covenant relationship with him because God had not made that covenant with any other people other than the seed of Abraham. 
The Egyptians could not say he is our God with respect to the covenant relationship with Abraham. He could have been their God, and I hope he was the God of some of them if they were saved. They would have been proselytes in that. They would have believed in Abraham's God. But there was, of course, a national choosing and a national election. So all of the Israelites would probably say, yeah, he's our God. Abraham's God is our God. Well, that's way too easy. That's the broadest thing that there is. And so many, even in Christianity, you know, even a lost sinner that's habitually sinning every day can say, he's my God. Well, in a sense, he is. If you're talking about there only being one God, yeah, yeah. If you're talking about him being the creator of all things, yeah, that, you know, several ways. But that's just a big, broad, general statement. I mean, he's the God of the demons. So, again, that's not saving faith. That's general acknowledgement. And you won't enter into rest just by acknowledging, well, God is our God. Acknowledgement doesn't save. Well, then we can narrow it down a little with the next statement. We are the people of his pasture. And indeed, that would have a special application to the Israelites, wouldn't it? Because of that covenant relationship being the seed of Abraham. You know, he's not just our God, which again, in a universal sense, he's the God of all humanity. But that doesn't mean he saves all humanity, does it? It's very general. But the people of his pasture, think of Psalms 23, the shepherd and the sheep. People of his pasture. That's more specific, isn't it? That's like one, one uh, ethnic group or what have you. And in this case, it was the seed of Abraham. Well, sheep of his pasture, okay, that means they were his. And like Psalms 23, he, he led them, he fed them, and he watered them, right? So that's better than being somebody else's animal where he's not doing that to those, but he's doing it to his ears. So that, that narrows it down to more personal. So in that, the Israelites could acknowledge God as their particular God, creator, and his sovereignty. The sheep of his pasture. There's his provision, right? So that's narrowing it down some. But you can believe that and go to hell too. You can believe that and die and not enter into rest, as many of them did. And then it narrows down a little bit more by saying, we are the sheep. I'm sorry, I, I said sheep of his pasture. I was carrying it over to Psalm 23. People of his pasture, now more narrow and specific is, we are the sheep of his hand. So that's a narrowing down to something more intimate, and something much more personal. Well, again, just because you believe you have a special relationship with God does not mean you have a special relationship with God. People think they have all kinds of relationships with God. Some think their relationship with God through nature will save them. It won't. Some people think their relationship with God through rites and ceremonies and works will save them. It won't. The only real relationship with God is through and by Jesus Christ. If your relationship's not based on Christ, you don't have a relationship with God. And you will not enter into rest, even though you may think you are the specific little lamb sheep whom He loved. Why would He love you? 
Why does he love you? How do you know he loves you? And et cetera, et cetera. That, that entails many questions. You just can't say, yeah, he's my God and I'm the people of his pasture and I'm the sheep of his hand and he blesses me and I know when I die I'm going to enter into hell. Well, that's all lovey-dovey, but <laughs> that's not the gospel. How many Israelites believe that? And yet, what do we read? Their carcasses fell in the wilderness. He swear they will not enter into my rest. Why didn't they enter into his rest? Hebrews 4 said, they heard the gospel, but they didn't have faith. They didn't believe. Now get this. We talked about this in Sunday school also. Verse 7 says, Today if you will hear His voice. They heard the voice of God. And again, I, I don't want to be redundant here, but they heard the voice of God. I mean, who of us can imagine Him? Surely you have. If you're a believer and you've read your Bible, you have wondered... When you read both the Old Testament and New Testament, what it would have been like to heard the voice of God. I mean, they can duplicate it on movies, but what if it had been real? I don't think any of us can embrace that scene at Sinai. I don't care what Hollywood, it's still beyond the proportions of human realism. Who, who could have imagined at the Mount of Transfiguration or the other times when God spoke, this is my beloved son here. I mean, what an experience, you know. Well, the Israelites heard the voice of God. They all heard it. They were all there, camped out at the bottom of the mountain. Not one of them didn't hear it. They all heard it. And yet their carcasses fell in the wilderness. Again, humanly, we think, how could that happen? How could anybody literally hear God's voice and everything associated with His presence there and not believe in God to the salvation of their souls? Well, it redefines for us what dead and trespasses and sin is, doesn't it? They died in the wilderness and didn't enter into His rest. They were faithless. And how many, not just Israelites, but have heard not the literal audible voice of God, but as I'm standing here today as called of God, declaring God's word, and if I do it faithfully and accurately, then God is speaking to you when I preach. And when other faithful men have preached, whether they be prophets, whether they be apostles, whether they be missionaries, whatever they are, when God's word and the gospel of Jesus Christ is preached, sinners hear his message. It is His voice. And yet that doesn't save everybody, does it? Fine, wouldn't it? Well, we come to that very easy. Verse 8 answers the question, harden not your heart. Man is hard-hearted. He doesn't get that way. He comes that way. He comes forth naturally hard-hearted. And it can only either be broken or get harder. And when confronted with God, His truth, His word, His message, one of the two is going to happen. He's not going to stay in the neutral zone. They hardened their heart. And they saw literally more of God and heard more of God in the physical realm than you and I ever will. And it hardened their heart. The warning is, harden not your heart. Now let me ask you, what does that mean and how do you do that? It's not difficult at all. 
they heard God's voice. They heard what God required at Sinai. And do you remember what their response was in the 19th chapter of Exodus? All that God has said, Moses, we'll do it. We'll do it. We'll do it. Did they do it? No, they didn't do it. What happened? Their carcasses fell in the wilderness. When you hear the Word of God, when you read the Word of God, when you're told the Word of God, and what your responsibility is to God, and you neglect that, you disobey that, you have just hardened your heart. And every time you hear it and reject it, every time you hear it and neglect it, every time you hear it and do something different than that, you have hardened your heart. That's what hardening your heart is. It's hard already, and you make it harder. Sinners harden their hearts. And it's simply disobedience to what God says. Reject the word, disobey, you're hardening your heart. Despising God's word, despising God's message. In spite of the fact that it says in verse 9, they saw his work, singular, but that included many miracles and works, plural, didn't it? Now again, I ask you, try as much as humanly possible to put yourself in their shoes. Think about all they saw. And I ask you, as I've said before, what else could God have done to put himself on display more than what he did do? You know the plagues in Egypt. You know the distinction. Clear-cut, day-and-night difference between this people and that people. Light here, darkness there. Lies here, none there. And on and on and on and on. All ten distinctions. Passover. I mean, I, I, you know, we could dwell on any one of these miracles through a whole message and messages. Come on, the Red Sea, who can imagine? Brothers and sisters, the most outstanding thing, again, that usually probably gets overlooked, that cloud was there all the time for 40 years, 24 hours a day. Unless you were physically blind. And even then, you could tell when you were in the cloud or in the sun. God's presence. We talk about waking up to manna on the ground breakfast every morning, but the cloud was there in the daytime. And it was a fire at night. They had a nightlight every night and a cloud every day. God's presence. I mean, you know, it's hard for me to just not get plumb bogged down here. It's over. Water out of a rock. You ever seen that? Not when it wasn't first coming out, you didn't. I mean, quails? I mean, all we want to talk about. They saw what you and I will never see in this life. And yet their carcasses fell in the wilderness. Unbelievable, isn't it? I must jump and say this also. You think about the same thing during... How many miracles you think Jesus may have performed in his short tenure upon this earth? And yet seeing a miracle in and of itself never saved one soul and never will. It was always insufficient. They were proofs. God could use a miracle and administer faith and a person could be saved. It was an instrument, but anybody humanly just seeing a miracle, it never saved anybody. 
They always wanted to see more. They never got enough. And Jesus told the unbelieving Pharisees, the hypocrites, and he said, no, I'm not giving you no more sign. It don't matter how many, I'm paraphrasing, but Jesus meant it when he said it. It don't matter how many signs I'd give you, you still wouldn't believe. But you're only going to get one more, and that's the resurrection sign three days and three nights. So they saw his work, and in spite of it doing something to them and cause them to believe, again, they rejected, hardened their heart. And the bottom line is, nobody else is exempt either. Just because we didn't see what they saw. Every sinner that's ever lived, wherever they've ever lived, in any generation, in any place on this planet, has seen the handiwork of God. You can look at the stars at night, you can look at the sun at the day, you can look at the flowers in bloom, you can look at the birds, you can look at nature, you can look at whatever, and you see the handiwork of God. God is on display. Read the book of Romans. It makes it very clear. So nobody is set in ignorance of God and His work, whether it's creative work, whether it's providential work, whether it's the fulfillment of prophecy. That's work that God has done and proven. So, so every generation of every people to different degrees and different scales has seen God's work, just not like the Israelites did. And yet they provoked, tempted, and proved Him, it says. And this is to their shame, isn't it? And I would say in spite of all that, provoked Him, tempted Him, improved Him. And I'm not going to go to the Scriptures and read these, but uh, there's Scriptures in Exodus 17 and 7 that mentions that at Massah and Meribah where they murmured against the Lord and uh, so forth. And the provoking was this. Claiming to believe the people of God, the sheep, the people of His pasture, the sheep of His hand, they heard His voice, they've been seeing the plagues, they saw the miracles, they've done all this, and yet they hardened their heart and asked the question when they got thirsty and the water was bitter, well, is God among us or not? Where's the pillar? Is God among us or not? I mean, you see what I'm talking about? When people, sinners, anybody, hear the voice of God and disobey God, reject God, neglect God, and then have foolish questions and things like that, it's a provoking of God. Let me give you a perfect example. So much in this generation we hear this. And it's sad. It's grievous. I'm not, I'm not, well, I am condemning it because it's not right. But again, I grieve for the people that say, well, if there is God, why, is there so, why does He allow so much sorrow and suffering? That's provoking God. That's tempting God. that says he is God and he can do what he wants to and I have no right to question anything he does. I am interested and I want to learn and I want to know but I am not going to ask a foolish question claiming to be God's child. Well, is God among us or has God abandoned us? You know, if, if we get in a time of discouragement, doubt, depression, whatever, and we think, well, is there really a God or has God just abandoned me? His word says what? I'll never leave you for something. So that thought... Or us pursuing that, that's tempting, provoking God. He's told us who He is and what He's going to do. Believer. 
The next thing it says, and this is sequential here, you see. They erred in their heart. Again, it takes us to the core of the problem. You can make a, as we say, mental error. But in your relationship or your neglect of God, it goes much deeper than your mind. you got a heart problem, not a mind problem. Sinners have heart problems. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. The heart's where God works. Jesus said it, didn't he? I mean, what did he say? Out of the heart. This is where everything comes forth that is vile and putrefying. You can't go no deeper than that. That's the very core of our being. Our soul, we've, we've said before in our studies, the heart is the palace of the soul. It's where the They didn't believe Moses. They didn't believe God. They did what? Lean to their own understanding. Went by their own emotions. All that. heard him speak but they still knew not what is that very simple willful ignorance it would have been ignorance if God had not spoke to him God had not showed him if Moses hadn't talked to him and all then yeah they did just we were just ignorant we didn't know we didn't you know but oh no there's plenty of evidence again where's the cloud So, as Hebrews said, they were faithless in spite of all that God manifest, faithless, and they fell in the wilderness and marked down, they did not enter into his rest. Now, unbelief without faith it's impossible to please God it's it's hard for me to imagine I don't know about you that there could be that many faithless people in that I mean you, you just would think the percentages would be higher after all they saw and all that but again the the state of the sinner in the human heart that generation passed away it was a 40-year funeral procession. 38 after Sinai. Yeah, that's all it was. God was blessing them every day. And they were burying people every day for 38 years. And again, very sadly, those people did not enter into Israel.
geography, but they weren't that far away. It's just not that far from Egypt to the promised land to start with. But again, this goes back again to the story of redemption. I mean, you know what, what we do as sinners without Christ? We're just wandering around. You know, we say that sometimes about people, not to condemn, but just it's sad to see people just, just stumble. We say stumble through life or wander through. Well, that's what the children of Israel do. And that's what sinners do without Christ, without you can see about God and what He did with these people as I've been describing it synonymously here is God's grace. First of all, God chose Abraham, didn't He? He made a covenant with Abraham and elected them. They had a national election. I mean, imagine being a part of that. I mean, who can imagine? One, one man, one man's seed, the apple of God's eye when there are all kinds of other people on the planet and yet God says, I set my love and affection and goodness on you. That's another story. But again, what was God's work? Well, I've talked about this before, but what was God's work? What is God's work to sinners that were not a part of this group in Israel? What, are sinner, what is God's work today to the sinner? God is every day blessing. Every day. Just and unjust. God's work is His continual and consistent blessings of grace upon all humanity. Again, it's very basic. It's very elementary. He gives life. He takes life. He gives the air, the water, the breath. The, everything that we have is owed to God. Sinners just don't know that. Every good gift, every perfect gift, it all comes from above. Not from beneath. So God's work, God's grace, is general grace, and it's to all humanity and all sinners everywhere and every time. I mean, especially to the Israelites. All the things we discuss. And yet it says God was grieved. Now, we've got to make a point here. We'll make it briefly and try to wrap this up. But think about this. Again, remember, everything we read about God in human language is inadequate. I mean, we just have to use what we got. We've got to use the best we've got, whether it's Hebrew, Greek, or English. But again, language. And so again, don't make the mistake of thinking when you read these things about God that it's like people, okay? God doesn't grieve like you grieve. I mean, God is God. God is different than us, so He can't grieve like we do, you know? But it says, I was grieved with this generation 40 years. What does that mean? Well... He was displeased. I guess you could use the word unhappy as a term 
that I don't like to use, you know, saying unhappy. But yet that's kind of what the psalmist says when he said he's angry with the wicked every day. He's certainly not happy with. But the word greed here carries more the thought of just disgusting and loathsome with these people. Here he was every day, just like an infant child, providing every need they had above and beyond what was needed. And it's like a kid that'll never say thank you. Never say, never, you know, not taught or don't know or whatever. Never say thank you, mommy. Thank you, daddy. Thank you, so and so. before we were saved or why he puts up with us now when we disobey but it's the attribute of God's long suffering he bears with us and he's more long suffering than any human being could ever imagine we are to be long suffering but ours can't even begin to pair with his how can God being God and doing all that he's doing for them for 40 years put up with this disobedient, rebellious, murmuring, complaining, whining, unthankful people. Well, obviously His faithfulness comes into view and all, but again, He bore with them. And that's faithless. It doesn't matter. We. What did Caleb and Joshua say? He can. We can because he said he would. There's where faith. Faith looks to God, His Word, His promises, 
faithlessness looks at ourselves. And based on that, I got to say this quickly. Bear with me. When we read about God swearing in His wrath, we've done that. When men do that, it's sin, isn't it? When we lose it, swear in our wrath, get mad, fly off the hook, whatever you want to call it, that's sin. That's not what God did. God's wrath is holy wrath, and when God is mad, it's justified anger. Christ became angry, did he not? It was justified. There was no sin in that. All he's done for them and their reaction to that is justified wrath. So God says, okay, that's it. You're not entering into my rest. And that generation passed off the scene over a period of 38 years. And Hebrews makes it very clear that they did not enter into his rest. What do you anticipate you're going to enter into when you take your breath? Rest. But what about your soul? Again, there's only two options. And those are very clearly set forth by our Lord in Luke 16. The people of God, like Lazarus, the angels would carry them to heaven, to paradise, to Abraham's bosom, all representative of eternal bliss with God. But you know what it says? I've, I've always noticed this, and I hope you notice it too. Think about that. The two men died. The angels carried Lazarus to rest. You know what it says about the other man? Doesn't even give Animal getting run over on the on the road, or a twenty-two bullet, they die. That's just it. That's all there was to it. Wasn't nothing beyond that. And in hell, he lifted up his eyes. Big difference. Big difference. Hebrews talks about a rest for the people of God. The things that God has prepared for His people are far better than what the children of Israel entered into in the Promised Land. That was all physical. The wells, the houses, the vineyards. 
what we have is eternal and that's what Christ our Lord has promised us there's a rest enter into for the people of Because if you believe in Christ to the salvation of your soul, you repented of your sins and found forgiveness in the blood of Christ, then he's promised you rest. And if you have any doubts about your standing, then I would, cons I would ask you to diligently, diligently think about this matter seriously. Cover to cover. There is no promise of God to the wicked for rest. Rather, just the opposite. This preacher's desire, and I know the people's desire here for those that are lost, is that people who think it's going to be all right when they die would not come up short. But the reality is, most will. So we say, consider these words today. Whatever God is leading you or speaking to you to do, do it. Repent and believe the gospel and enter into that rest. Cole, if you would come.